Well, good morning, saints. Don't worry, we're not going to take another offering now. I'm here to preach y'all this morning, okay? That's, that's my role this morning. Pastor Zach is on one of the, uh, the Ironman competitions. He is out of town, and he started looking down the roster. He said, well, we, second string is gone, third string is gone, got next man up. And that's me. Now, I, I have had experience preaching before. I, I, I want to make that clear. You can feel comfortable. I have done this before. There was a time a few years back that I had preached, and at the end of the service, the kids are downstairs in this particular church. And I went down the stairs, and there's a set of doors. And as I got down to the bottom of the stairs, I could overhear two people on the other side of the doors talking. And I wasn't trying to eavesdrop. I really wasn't. But I, I couldn't help. The first guy said, did you hear Pastor Brian preaching this morning? The second guy said, oh, yeah. It was like the peace and mercy of God. The first guy didn't skip a beat. Hold on a second. The first guy didn't skip a beat. He said, oh, I know what you mean. It was, it was like the peace of God in that it passed all understanding. And it was like the mercy of God in that it endured forever. <laughs> Folks, I'm going to try the best I can today to put the cookies on the bottom shelf, to make it easily accessible for everybody. I don't want to be anything way above your head. I want to make sure that the grace of God is ministered this morning. And as far as enduring forever, look, I know we got to beat the Methodists and the Presbyterian to Barcelona Burger or Brick House or Pickled Peach, wherever it is you like to go. I promise we're going to get you out on time today, okay? So that's, that's our aim, okay? Now, I've already given you the sermon title. I know some people like to take notes and I hope you've already written down the sermon title. Y'all saw that already, right? Good morning, <laughs> what? One person paying attention. I'm, I've been up here for two or three minutes, and y'all, some of you have already forgotten. That is our sermon title this morning. What else did you think I was going to preach about this morning? I mean, it's only natural that this would be what I'm going to speak to you. But the reality is, you are the saints of God. And the end is where I want to begin. And here is the two points that I want you to hit this morning. When you walk through those doors in about 30 minutes or so, I want you to have two things. Number one, I want you to have a bigger picture of who Jesus Christ is. I don't care if you've been a believer for 40, 50, 60 years. I want you to have a bigger picture of Jesus Christ. The second thing that I want you to walk through those doors with is a clearer picture of who you are in Christ Jesus. That's my dual aim this morning. And to do that, I want to give you just some insights from the Word of God about what it means to be saints. Now, I'm going to start about 30 years ago in Barcelona, Spain, the 1992 Summer Olympics. Now, for those of you that are sports fans, you probably are already starting to put some of the pieces together. This was the year that the United States unleashed on the world the Dream Team. And we have the picture up on the, the screen right now. The greatest collection of basketball talent ever seen on one court. An absolutely incredible number of people that were phenomenal at playing basketball. 
Now, I'm just curious, how many of you know of the 12 basketball players who are portrayed on that screen right now, how many of them are currently in the Basketball Hall of Fame? So, some, some people think they know what it is. The correct answer, the correct, I had to look it up. I did not know this one on my own. I'm not a huge basketball fan. 11. 11 of the 12 players on that team are currently enshrined in the NBA Hall of Fame for their prowess as individual players on the basketball court. The only one who is not in the Hall of Fame is that guy on the front row, number four, player by the name of Christian Leitner. He is not in the Hall of Fame. His inclusion on this team was due to one very simple fact. In 1992, he was the reigning college basketball player of the year. Now, I have a conspiracy theory about this. I don't think that's why he was included on the team. If you look right behind Mr. Leitner, you'll see a guy by the name of Michael Jordan. Perhaps you've heard of him. Okay, Michael Jordan transcends sports. Everybody's heard of Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan is a Tar Heel. And the powers that be could not allow this team to have a Tar Heel without having somebody from Duke on the team as well. Okay, and so that's why Christian Leitner is on the team. Now, don't, don't blame me. I'm an ABCD fan. Anyone but Carolina or Duke. Okay? I just... <laughs> I washed my hands with both of them. My team won yesterday. Scarlet and Gray beat Notre Dame last night, just in case some of you didn't stay up late. I was there to the very end. Gene had not quite fallen asleep, and when the Ohio State won the game on the last second, I literally jumped on the bed and just yelling. And uh, she had a hard time falling asleep. I knew I would, but she did. But the dream team was an incredible collection of basketball talent. It was a marvel to watch them, even if you don't like basketball, because they were so good individually, but collectively as a team. And in the Olympics, they played eight games, five in the uh, preliminary rounds, three in the medal rounds. The average margin of victory for the Dream Team in 1992 Olympics was over 45 points a game. They beat their opponents. The first game they played was against the African nation of Angola. They beat them by 68. If I remember correctly, the margin of victory was greater than the amount of points that the Angolan team could score in the entire game. They were just an incredible display of basketball talent. The teams that the United States played against were in so much awe of the greatness of this team that at the end of the game, they would come to the Americans' bench and ask for autographs. They wanted to get Carl Malone and John Stockton and Magic and then that uh, guy Bird. Sorry, Mom, he was not one of my favorites. Okay, sorry. It is rumored that Michael Jordan actually signed a pair of tennis shoes that were not Nikes because people were there. That was a big, big rumor at the time. But this basketball team was absolutely phenomenal at basketball. One of the teams that was favored to possibly give the Americans a game and a, a silver medal contender and maybe even a chance to win were the team from Croatia. And sure enough, the United States and Croatia met in the gold medal game. The United States beat them by 32 points. Just absolutely destroyed them. And basically, they kind of let up in the last part of the game because they were so far ahead, the game was over. 
This is the dream team. Folks, do you understand that as saints of God, you are God's dream team? You are God's. See, the word saints is used in the Bible is not designated for a special group of believers. The word saints in the Bible means anyone who has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and is walking by faith, not by sight, as Brother Sam said just a few moments ago. You are God's dream team. You are one of the saints of God. I was reminded of this verse in scripture. It's not going to be on the board, but this morning I got a note from Pastor Esau Tembo. He is the pastor of Multiply Church in Livingston, Zambia. And about six months ago or so, I was able to be with Pastor Esau as they're making that transition to becoming Multiply Church. And through this week, he's been telling me that there's one of the saints of his church was admitted to the ER, was struggling with her health, and overnight, Annie passed away. Now, I asked Esau if I met her, and he said, well, she was at church the day you were here, but I don't think we ever introduced you to her. And immediately, when I read Esau's note this morning, my mind immediately went to the 116th Psalm. It's not in the notes because literally I thought of it this morning, where God said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And I never met Annie. But Pastor Esau tells me she was a saint of God. Brothers and sisters, you are the saints of God. And that is the premise this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Ephesians chapter 1. I won't stay there the whole time, but we're going to read a good portion of this passage of Scripture to help you see the reality about who you are in Jesus Christ. There's a gentleman by the name of Thomas Merton had a really important quote that I want to share with you really quickly. A saint is not someone who is good, but experiences the goodness of God. And is that limited to us in any way? Do we have to live up to anything? No, the goodness of God is open to any and all. And that is, the, that is why we are the saints of God. So we're going to open up our Bible in Ephesians chapter 1, and I just want you to follow along, and we'll stop and make some important notes and some things here for all of us to consider, starting with verse 1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Who's Paul writing to? God's holy people who are living in Ephesus. Well, if you know anything about the construction of the Bible, the Bible was not written in English. None of the portions of the Bible were written in our language. In fact, the Bible was not translated into English until many centuries after the time of Christ. The Bible was mostly written in Hebrew, Aramaic, and in the case of the New Testament, mostly in Greek. And sometimes when people translate it, they use different words to express the same idea. So I want to share with you Ephesians 1.1 in the King James Version of the Bible, just over 400 years old. And here you can see what it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints, which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. 
The holy people are the saints. The saints are the holy people. And by extension, brothers and sisters, you are the saints of God. If you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and filled with his spirit, you are the saints that Paul is talking to. Now, in the Greek language, the word that is translated holy people, saints, it's the Greek word hagios. You can see it there on the screen. It is the root word for another word we've heard quite a bit recently here. It is the root word for sanctification. It is that process by which we become Christ-like. Sanctification is separation from sin and being set apart to serve the Savior. And that word hagios is the root word for sanctification. It is also the root word for saints. All of that is wrapped up in this one word. Paul conveying a message to us. You are the saints of God the holy people, the sanctified ones. See, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, God made a declaration over you. You have been justified from your sins. It's this big Bible word, justification. What is justification? Justification is when we accept Jesus as our Savior, God accepts us just if we never sinned. God looks at you and sees a clean slate. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. You are the saints of God. And our status as saints of God is not connected to who we are or what we do. It is connected to the character and the nature of God Almighty. That is our standing as saints. And that's what we're going to look at here in the next few verses as we read together through Ephesians chapter 1. The first point is God's love. It's part of his character and nature. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. This is God's love. I know that most of you, maybe even all of you, are familiar with that scripture, Jesus speaking in John chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is God's love. And this is the root of who you are, is God's love. The next section, verses 5 through 8, talk about God's grace. Let's read that together. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. 
God's grace is God's love in action to us. It's God giving us something that we don't deserve. By ourselves, none of us deserve to be forgiven of our sin because each of us has been guilty. We've learned that in the book of Romans, chapter 6, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we know and understand we have been forgiven by God's grace. Verses 9 to 11 now, still in Ephesians chapter 1. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. This is God's sovereignty in action. This is God being in charge. Nothing outside of God can influence him and change him. God is the standard by which everything else is measured. He cannot be changed. We are the ones that have to change and adjust to him. God is sovereign, and he works out everything according to his plan. This is God's will for you, and this is the root of your holiness, because this is God's plan that you would be holy. And we'll find that out now as we continue on. Verses 18 to 23, we're skipping a section here. Verses 18 to 23 talk about God's power, His omnipotence. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope He has given to those He called. His holy people who are His rich and glorious inheritance. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. This is God's power. The same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is the power that is at work in your life. Whether you realize it or not, God's power is in you because his spirit is in you. You received Christ as your Lord and Savior. He dwells within you. And that power that raised Jesus from the dead is in you. It's right here. We have it in black and white. And understand, Paul is talking to the church. Now, we understand the church is not this building. These are walls. This is a platform. Those are chairs. This is not a church. You and me and even Pastor Zach, wherever he is right now, we are the church of God. And it is for that reason that Jesus came and died, and it is for that reason that you have the same power at work within you. Now, for the next point, we're actually going to skip to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Because the final point in this section 
Our status as believers is rooted in the character and nature of God. Our status as saints, holy people. Read what Peter has to say here. But now you must be holy in everything you do. Just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say you must be holy because I am holy. Our call to holiness is rooted directly to who God is. God is morally perfect in every way. And we are called to that level of holiness. That's our calling. That's our destiny. That, folks, is our inheritance because we are the saints of God by the justification of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross. I come back to that point. You've heard that point. If you've been in the church as long as I have, you've heard that point over and over. The question is, is do you realize it? Do you realize the impact that that truth has on you? Do you truly embrace the reality? I am. I didn't do this in the first service. I said this at the men's retreat. I am a man of God, by the grace of God, for the glory of God. That is who I am in Jesus Christ. And that hasn't changed because of anything I do or don't do. It's all rooted in Him. The holiness that I am called to walk in is rooted in the character and nature of God. But we have a struggle because we tend to look to ourselves. The Old Testament saints did that. They tend to look to themselves. And we see the areas and the places where we fall short. We mess up. We have reservations. Pastor Manny, some weeks ago, when he was preaching in Romans chapter 7, the good that I know I should do, I don't do. The things I know I shouldn't do, these are the things I do. Oh, Lord, who will deliver me from this man of sin? That struggle is real. Even though we've been redeemed by Christ. This is the Apostle Paul writing, confessing the fact that he's still struggling with his old nature. And we had a quote that Pastor Manny shared those weeks ago from Dr. Frank Turek, who was here about three or four weeks ago. If there is no war inside you, your old nature is in control. That's that internal struggle we feel. See, I know better than anyone else in this room the areas that I still struggle with, the sin that I still wrestle with, the thoughts, the attitudes, the actions that I still struggle with. I know better than, my, than anyone else, except maybe Jean. She has to live with me. But the same is true for yourself. You've been wondering why I have my marker and my whiteboard. Let me show you here. Some of the sins of the flesh are very obvious. Here's one, lies. Okay, we'll stop on everyone's toes just right from the beginning. I'm assuming that pretty much all of us here have been guilty of lying at some time or another. Okay, I, I am a bad dancer. I will equally step on all of your toes at some point in time. I'm, I'm not trying. It just kind of works that way. Okay, let's go to hear something else a little different. Oh, now, Mr. Brown, I've never murdered anybody. <sighs> I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> the problem is, in the book of 1 John, we're told that if you hate your brother in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Ugh, now, nah, that's a double step. How about this one? Forgive my handwriting, huh? Greed. 
There's a few of us, maybe that's in there. How about envy? How about lust? How about pride? How about adultery? These are the sins of which we are guilty. But here's an important thing. God's grace is greater than our sins. God's grace is greater than anything. And even if I didn't list your particular flavor, forgive me, God's grace is greater than your sins. There is nothing that you can do that outside the grace of God that he can't forgive. I've known a number of people over the years that I've lived that have been guilty of the sin of adultery. I've seen marriages torn apart, and I've seen marriages restored because of the grace of God. God's grace cleanses us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will purify us from all unrighteousness. God's grace is greater than any of the sins that we commit. God's grace is greater. He removes our sins, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. And our sins are completely removed. Romans again, chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to the Lord. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know what I've discovered? God's grace has been evident in my life. I've been forgiven. And I still end up doing some of the same stupid things over and over again. I don't feel like a saint all the time. I don't always feel like I'm an overcomer, even though the Bible says that I am. I don't feel it all the time. Feelings are great indicators, but they're lousy directors. Man, they are terrible directors. Don't base your faith on your feelings. Base your faith on the reality of Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and risen again on the third day. There's your basis. See, God's grace is greater than our sin. In 1 John, when when John writes, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to purify us from all unrighteousness. Understand, John was writing to believers. He wasn't writing to unbelievers. He was writing to people, the church, the saints, the holy ones. And he's saying, you're forgiven. But do you see the problem? Can you see the problem here? God's grace is greater than our sins. But do you see the problem? I still have the marker in my hand. And this marker, as long as it's in my hand, I can use it to write any one of the sins that are things that I fall prey to. See, God is not concerned with our sins. Hold on, let me finish this. God is not concerned with our sins because His grace is greater than our sins. Here's the problem. We have a sin nature. And this is my sin nature. 
that causes me to do the things where I fall short of the grace of God. And this is why I need the grace of God to remove the sin nature, to take the marker out of my hand. I have to get rid of the sin nature. And that, my brothers and sisters, is something that we cannot do on our own. We are not capable on our own of taking this marker out of our hands. It is only one way. You've heard it. But do you believe it? Do you know it? That's the question. We struggle with these sins. And I can continue to write them on here however you want. Oh, we haven't hit drunkenness yet. We'll, we'll pop that one on there too. Uh, drunken, there we go. Spelling is actually something I'm good at. Get ahead of myself. These are all sins that are true. Some of us, I'm sure even this small list, you've probably had issues with one or more of these. And if I don't, I can keep writing. We'll, we'll keep going. But God's grace is greater than our sin. God's grace is greater than that. But here's the question for you this morning. You can't defeat a demon you enjoy playing with. If you struggle with drunkenness and alcoholism, what are you doing in a bar? I'm watching the game. You struggle with lust. What are you doing going to those websites? You're going to the... I knew a man many years ago who struggled with drug addiction. And he was trying to come back to Christ. He was, he was struggling with all that. And one Friday night, he went down into Charlotte working a drug deal. The next morning, I had to go to his house and talk to his three young children, the oldest of which was 11 years old, the youngest one was five or six, and I had to explain to them why their daddy was never coming home. Folks, that was the hardest thing I think I've ever done in my life, talking to three little kids. because he was still struggling with his identity. But God's grace is greater than our sins. And we need to revel in the truth of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new species of being that has never existed before. God has cast your sins away as far as the east is from the west. When we learn to give up that sin nature and walk and realize my peace is in Christ. My provision is in Christ. My purpose is in Christ. My joy is in Christ. My contentment is in Christ. Everything I am is rooted in Him. My holiness is rooted in Christ Jesus. I don't have to strive. All I have to do is submit, obey to the Spirit of God moving in and through me and realize I, I've been a believer for 43 years now and there are lessons that God is still teaching me. I haven't arrived. In fact, I've discovered something really amazing. The closer I get to God, the further away from Him I realize I am because I get a bigger picture of who Jesus is, and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, God is greater 
than my limited mind can capture. And as I draw nearer and nearer to Christ, nearer my God to thee, I realize how far I still have to go. But it doesn't change my status. I am a saint of God. I am a man of God by the grace of God for the glory of God. And that doesn't change because God's character never changes. So what is our response to God's grace? We've been made a new creation. Ephesians 4.15, it says, Grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Grow up, mature, sanctified, that process. And then we continue on. Philippians 2.12, work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. God's salvation is real. Now we have to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. A result of what God's done in us is the works that we do. Continuing on, Hebrews 4.14, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Let's not just love God with words. Our actions show what God's done in our lives. In Philippians 3.16, we must hold on to the progress we have already made. We have to work out what we've already attained. God has declared you just. Now we live out God's work in us as we step forward, participating with the Holy Spirit in obedience to become what we are. We are the saints of God. That is our calling. That is our destiny. That is our hope. That is our future. But it is also our present reality. Because when you walk in the presence of God, everything flows. Those of you that have been in uh, some of the Bible studies that either Gene and I do or the Monday morning men's group that I'm a part of, maybe you've had breakfast with me. A few of you have been out to to breakfast with me, if you were at the men's retreat, you'll remember this. You've heard this. This is something God showed me 12 years ago, maybe. And it really, really has helped me because it makes things so simple. It's four questions. Just four questions. I usually like to start with this question right here, but it's a hard question, especially those of us living in Western cultures. This is a hard question. So I'm going to start with the second question. What do you want? What do you really want? What is it that really you want? What what do you mean, Mr. Brian? Are you you talking about my marriage? You talking about my money, my job, my future, my career? What are you talking? Yeah, all of it. What What is it that you really want? And then this question. What are you willing to do? See, now we're going to go the other direction. Everything that you do reveals what you really want. I like having a roof over my head and food on the table. So I go to work for the United States Postal Service five days a week, eight hours a day. I've got to tell you, folks, some of the jokes you've heard about the Postal Service, some of them are real. Some of them are real. 
And I put up with, I mean, if you've ever worked for the government, you know that occasionally they have a, a reputation for inefficiency. No, it's not a reputation, folks. It's reality, okay? I gave up 10 years ago trying to, well, if we did this, it would, no. All that did was get me more frustrated. But I work there because I want a roof over my head. I want food on my table. I want to be able to support this church with my tithes, with offerings. I want to get in that new building, y'all. I drove by yesterday, and it's still out there, future home of Multiply. I don't want it to be the future home. I want it to be the home next Sunday. That's what I want. But God's working through me. So everything I do reveals what I really want. What I really want reveals that, that question that I said was first. It reveals who I am. Who are you? Who are you? Don't tell me about what you... Don't tell me that you're a student. Don't tell me that you're a mother. Don't tell me that you're an employee. Don't tell me that you're a basketball player. Don't tell me that you're a dance student. Don't tell me about all the things you do. Tell me, who are you? What, at the very core of your being, who are you? And if you don't know, follow the steps. What are you doing? What do you really want? Because when you answer those questions, you're going to come face to face with the fact, oh, this is who I am. And sometimes that can be a scary question. But then we come to that fourth question now. That fourth question. Who is Jesus to you? See, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And the disciples began to give these answers. Well, some people think you're Isaiah. Some people think you're John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Some people think you're this prophet or that person. And Jesus said, okay, fine, 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 stop. Who do you say I am? And Peter spoke up. That incredible declaration of faith. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, Jesus was talking with a woman at the well. We're familiar with the story. Do you remember when she spoke to Jesus? She said, Jesus, you Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem. My people say we have to worship at this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And Jesus looked at her and said, woman, you've got it all wrong. See, there's coming a time when you will neither worship God in Jerusalem nor on this mountain. My people will worship me in spirit and in truth. Do we have the truth of who Jesus Christ is? Because when we see Jesus for who he is, it completely transforms who we are. See, we're created in the image of God. The Bible tells us that in Genesis chapter 1. We are created in the image of God, and it has absolutely nothing to do with this. Zero. This is why the sin of racism is so heinous in God's sight. This is why hating men or women is so heinous in God's sight. This is why discriminating against people that are older or younger is so heinous in God's sight. This is why God hates all that, because every one of us are created in the image of God, and it doesn't look like this. It's the fact that we have a mind, emotions, and a will. And the youngest child, the oldest grandpa, we have a mind, emotions, and a will. We're created in the image of God. Now our minds, our emotions, our will have been marred by the sin nature. 
But when we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it changes everything. It changes everything we are. But we have to see Jesus for who he is. And see, folks, this is why we have to go this direction, not this direction. It's not our works that dictate who Jesus is. Jesus is the Son of God, Savior, and Lord. And when we are transformed by the grace of God, we become His children, His saints. And that changes what we want. That changes what we do. What we do, it doesn't go this way. It has to go this way. The grace of God comes first. The character and the nature of God come first. I mentioned it earlier. There's a confession of the church. It dates back about four centuries now. It's called the Westminster Confession. A few weeks ago, Pastor Judah mentioned the Apostles' Creed. This is along that same vein. It says, the chief aim of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Saints, how do we become who God has called us to be, who God has anointed us to be, who God has sent his son Jesus to die for us to be? It's by coming to know who Jesus is, finding out who he is. And that's what we call worship. See, there are people that don't come to church for the first 15 minutes of the service because I don't want to be a part of that. I'm singing you completely miss the point. Folks, tr Pastor Judah, trust me. If you ever heard me sing, you would fall on your knees immediately and beg me to never sing out loud again. You, it, it is real. Those of you old enough to remember Bob Dylan, I make him sound good. Okay, I am bad. Not as bad as my son. Now, that's a different story. God bless him. But worship comes from the heart. When we look to heaven and we see Almighty God, who he is, and let the glory of God transform us, which then transforms our wants and transforms what we do. If you need a biblical example, write this down. Read it for yourself later. Isaiah chapter 6. He was in the presence of God, and it completely changed his life. Oh, you want a New Testament example? Let's look at John the Revelator. Revelation chapter 1. He saw Jesus and fell on his feet as though he were dead because he realized, oh my goodness, the closer I get to God, the further away from Him I realize I am. Folks, I want to encourage you as we step back into worship right now, open your hearts to Him. Sing your guts out to know Christ and to let Him transform your life. Let's worship together.